Today's teaching text comes from Matthew 7, 21 through 29. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them with one who had authority and not as their scribes. This is the word of God to us. Hey, you guys can grab a seat. Good morning. Thanks so much for being here. If you, if you don't know me, if we haven't had a chance to meet, my name is Andrew, and I get to serve as one of our pastors here. Uh, so, so glad to be with you, especially if you're here and you're wrestling with some of the claims of Jesus. We want you to know this is a safe place to do that. And you don't have to believe what we believe, but you're totally welcome to jump in and be a part of what we're doing. So thank you for being here. Uh, have you ever heard of the, the concept of the knowledge doubling curve? You ever heard of this? Some of you? Uh, the, the knowledge doubling curve is trying to ask a somewhat nerdy question, but also really interesting question, which is this. How long does it take for all that there is to know, all the knowledge in the world, how long does it take for all of that to double, right? So uh, there was a guy named Buckminster Fuller who kind of designed this, coined this phrase and was wrestling with this. And he was a, he was a systems theorist that was uh, doing a lot of other things, architecture and a bunch of stuff. But this was one of the questions that he spent some time on. And it's interesting, his research, he basically came up with this. He said that from the time Jesus was born, it took about 1,500 years for all that there is in the world to know, all that there is to know in the world to double. 1,500 years. Think about that. And then in 1900, he said, it started to rapidly increase. In 1900, it was every 100 years, all the knowledge in the world doubled. And today, here's what's shocking. Today, depending on who you ask, if you do research, Google strategists tend to say that all the knowledge in the world doubles about every 12 hours. So think about that. If you were born tomorrow, uh, you would kind of wake up and then, and then that night by evening time, everything that there is to know in the world, all the content, all the data, all the information would double in 12 hours. And, and this is just, you feel this. We live in what's called the age of information. There is content and data everywhere, isn't there? I mean, you woke up this morning and you were just flooded with content and flooded with stuff on your phones. And, and, and that's not all bad. In fact, there's some really good stuff about uh, this age of information that we live in. Like here's an example. As a pastor, one of the things that's incredible is that in a matter of minutes, I can access on my laptop more theological content than any pastor in the history of the early church could have ever dreamed of accessing in their entire lifetime. More than St. Augustine, more than Calvin or Luther, I can access in a matter of minutes on my laptop stuff that they couldn't even dream about in their entire life. So there's some really good stuff about the age of information, but if we're honest, there's also some really bad stuff about it because we're just inundated. In fact, there's a guy named Neil Postman who wrote a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death, 
And just listen to this quote from this book and tell me if this doesn't ring true to what it feels like to live in 2019. We are glutted with information, drowning in information, have no control over it, don't know what to do with it. Can I get an amen from anybody that that resonates with? Yeah, that feels like what it li- it's like to live in 2019. And here's what's also interesting. It's not just that we have more content and more data and more information coming our way than ever before, but there's been a strategic, important shift in the way that we now interact with and receive that information. And it's interesting. Neil Postman talks about this in his book. He doesn't point to the iPhone, which you would think. He doesn't point to the 24-7 news cycle or social media or the internet or any of those things. He says that the, the strategic shift that happened and how we receive information actually took place in the 1830s with the invention of the telegraph. He says the telegraph changed the way that we now receive information because for the first time, the data that we were getting is separated from time and space. Let, let me explain it like this. Like, for, for most of humanity throughout all of history, the way that you'd receive information was by literally being there when something happened. In your small village or in your small town, something tragic might happen or something scary might happen, and you're there to witness it. You're there to hear about it. And here's the big key. You're there to actually do something about it right? It's time and space connected. So you're hearing news that's like in your own backyard and you can actually lean in and do something about it. So like if somebody's house were on fire, you wouldn't start a hashtag. You you wouldn't get on Facebook and do a, you know, we've got to rally together and stop all house fires everywhere. And no, you just be like, everybody grab water. Let's put out the fire. And yet today, the way that we receive information is completely disconnected from where we live and from the world, uh, from the way that we can actually step in with change. We are flooded with stuff that we don't even know what to do about. I mean, how many of you woke up this morning and just things that are happening in politics, things that are happening across the globe somewhere, uh, tragedies that are taking place in other parts of the world with various people, it can even cause an emotional response where you like feel something deeply about it, but we're so used to hearing so much and not actually doing anything because we can't. So this is where we get the phrase, in one ear, out the other. Very good. That's the world that we live in. We just have information coming in nonstop but it doesn't actually translate to any sort of action. Now, here's why I share all of that. Because we've spent the last four months carefully walking through the Sermon on the Mount. Think about that. Four months that we've been taking the words of Jesus, the most significant teaching that he ever gave in his three years on earth, the the most important teaching for what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to what it means to to live in the way of Jesus in in the, the world. This is the most important teaching that Jesus ever gave. And here's my fear. And here's, I think, the fear of, of, of any pastors we would approach the ending of the sermon series, that this would all be amazing content that goes in one ear and then absolutely out the other. That this would just be like all the other stuff out there that you might even confess to believe. You might even draw an emotional response out of it and go, man, I really love this series and all the stuff that we looked at. You might even be 100% behind this in your mind and in your thoughts, but then have your life that's totally disconnected from actually doing anything about it. And, And Jesus knows this. And so the way that Jesus decides to end his sermon is really fascinating. And in fact, I never give you like the title of my sermon. Like here's the title of my sermon today, but I'm going to tell you, I've titled my sermon, Jesus is jarring end to his sermon. Because what he decides to do is not give us a, a cute story. 
He doesn't end with a joke. He doesn't end with chicken soup for the soul. He actually goes for the jugular, as it were, and he ends with a haunting, jarring story about the dangers of just listening and even believing and even being emotionally moved, but not actually doing anything. That's what Jesus decides to do. So uh, if you followed with us in the series, then you know that as Jesus has started to land the plane of his sermon, his outro, what, what he's doing is he starts to talk about these pairs. So the first pair that he brings up is two different gates. You have the narrow gate and the wide gate. And what happens if you go through the narrow gate is it takes you down a really hard path. That hard path is following Jesus and all of his commands. That path leads to life. But then there's this other path over here that is the wide gate. You go through that gate, and this is literally just doing whatever you want to do. Jesus calls it the easy way. It's where you define what's right and wrong for yourself, and that path doesn't lead to life. It actually leads to destruction. And then Jesus moved last week into talking about two different prophets. You've got the real prophets, the, the guiding lights, the luminaries who speak on behalf of God to show us the way that we should go, the path that we should walk on to what Jesus classifies as real human flourishing. But then you have these false prophets or these pseudo prophets. And these are, these are luminaries in our world that are calling out to you to actually reject the way of Jesus. And, and what's scary about this is they even come dressed as sheep, but actually they're wolves dressed in sheep's clothing. And so here's what's so scary about this. What Jesus is saying is that there are people out there who take the name of Jesus. Maybe they're pastors or they're, they have a Christian podcast or they're a Christian author, but all of their writing isn't trying to get you to walk down the hard path of following Jesus. It's actually trying to get you down the easy path of doing whatever it is that's right in your own eyes. And then today, Jesus wants to introduce one final pair, and this is two disciples. He wants to warn us about two very different disciples. So if you're with me, look at Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, the final day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. As Jesus lands the plane of a sermon, he ends it with a sober warning. I want to look at this warning with you. Uh, so last week, as I just said, we talked about pseudo-prophets versus real prophets. And again, those pseudo-prophets are trying to lead us off of the narrow, uh, difficult path of following Jesus and his commands, trying to get us to do whatever is right in our own eyes. And so the warning of Jesus last week sounded like this. Hey, don't be fooled by other people. Even if they claim to be Christians, don't be fooled by other people. And he gave some ways of testing whether or not they really are followers of Jesus or not, whether, whether they're true or false pseudo-prophets. But today the warning is different. Today he's not saying, hey, don't be fooled by others. Today he's saying, hey, don't even be fooled by yourself. Don't even be fooled by you. So who is this specific sober warning for? Well, if you're here and you claim to be a follower of Jesus, this is Jesus giving you a sober warning. All of us who claim to belong to Jesus, he's talking directly to us. So what, what, what is it? What is a pseudo-disciple, a pseudo-Christian? What does that even mean to be a pseudo-Christian? Well, a pseudo-disciple says the right stuff about Jesus. 
A pseudo disciple even has great theology. Like I love this in this passage. They're, they're not saying anything wrong or bad. They're saying Lord. In fact, they're saying Lord, Lord. Like double right. You are Lord, Lord. And, and, and these are people that go to church regularly. These are people that read their Bibles. These are people that during worship and singing, they, they lift their hands, which by the way is literally okay to do on a Sunday. Did you know that? Some of you didn't know that. Some of you like, this is your one stance. Uh, there's actually other ways. You can, you can do this too. It's okay. Biblical, it's all right. Uh, th- these are people that lift their hands and worship. These are people that amen to sermons. That's also okay to do from time to time, by the way. Shameless plug. Uh, so thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. So many thank yous. Um, so these pseudo disciples are people that when it comes to content and even confessing the right stuff, they got it. They look great. They say all of the right words. A pseudo-disciple, in addition to that, can even do powerful stuff for Jesus. They can even work really hard for Jesus. They can do a lot of good things for Jesus. Like, like it mentions they prophesy. By the way, that's not a bad thing. That's a great thing. They cast out demons. We need more of that. They do mighty miracles. That's I'm all for the mighty miracles. I believe in that. That's great. So like these pseudo-disciples, follow me here. These pseudo-disciples, they say the right stuff. They believe the right stuff. And they're even working really beautiful things for Jesus. But do you know the scary part? They actually don't obey Jesus. It's possible to believe the right doctrine, to confess the right stuff, and even work really hard for Jesus, and yet have a life that's totally disconnected from the teachings in the Sermon on the Mount. Look at what Jesus says. These are not my words. These are his words. In verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Who will? But the one who does the will of my Father. It does not matter what you say. It matters what you believe, but it doesn't ultimately just matter what you believe if you do not also do the will of Jesus' Father in heaven. He ends it like this in verse 23. And then I will declare to them these terrifying words, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. He sends them away because of their lawlessness. That's, that's a confusing way to understand this. So let me just quote Frederick Bruner, who translates this verse like this. He says, and then I will have to confess to them, I never really knew you. Please get out of my face, you doers of the very opposite of my teachings. You see, friends, this is what Jesus is ending his sermon with. That what you do actually matters. It doesn't just matter what you say. It doesn't just matter if you claim to be a follower of Jesus. It doesn't just matter if you work really hard for Jesus. It matters what you do. Not because what you do is what makes you a Christian. Not because what you do gets you in good graces with God the Father. But what you do absolutely reveals who you really are. That's what Jesus is saying. That it reveals who you are. Klein Snodgrass says it like this. Let's get something straight right from the beginning. If you do not act like a Christian, you are not a Christian. Yes, I'm willing to die on that hill. There's no such thing as an identity that does not act. If you do not treat people, especially spouses and other family members, from and with Christian virtues, 
then there is serious doubt that you are a Christian. And no, I do not believe in salvation by works, but I do know that faith involves attachment to and participation with Christ. And if that is the case, you cannot be attached to Christ without without acting in accord with his character to some large extent. Identity informs behavior. This is exactly what Jesus is teaching. Identity leads to action, meaning if you are a son or daughter of God Most High, if you are a follower of Jesus, that's an identity that you have taken on, then that necessarily leads to action. Let me say it in a way that's really kind of silly and hopefully helpful. If it looks like a duck, if it waddles like a duck, if it quacks like a duck, what are we dealing with? A duck. We're not dealing with a turkey or a rabbit or a deer. We're dealing with a duck. That is so insanely simple and logical and clear. And what Jesus is now saying is if it looks like the world, if it talks like the world, if it acts like the world in terms of its relationship to lust and money and anger and possessions and enemy love and retaliation and divorce and anxiety and all of these things that Jesus has walked us through, if it just takes the world's approach to all of that, you're not dealing with a follower of Jesus. You're dealing with someone who has embraced the world. Identity leads to action. Grace leads to obedience. If you receive the grace of God, which by the way, is for everybody. It's offered to anybody. You don't have to do anything to deserve it. That's why it's called grace. It's just his lavish favor and affection. Whether you love him or respond to him, the father loves you as you are. And when you actually receive that, that reality and it penetrates your soul, it leads to obedience. Faith always leads to following Always, if you have faith in Jesus, it's not just a mental ascent because even demons do that. It's a faith that leads to a posture of following that puts my life under his, his authority and his teaching. Some of you are sitting here and you're going, Andrew, are you trying to scare us? Yeah, I am a little bit. I am a little bit because this actually is a little bit sobering, isn't it? Especially in Oklahoma where it's really easy to profess to be a Christian and yet have a life that's very disconnected from the teachings of Jesus. And listen, please, please don't mistake this for my words. You do your work and you wrestle with the words of Jesus. He is the one giving us the sober warning. As he wraps up his sermon, he doesn't want it to end on a high note. He's saying, okay, I've just spent all of this time teaching. Now, please, please be aware that there are pseudo disciples. Now, what do we do about that? How do we respond to this? Well, Jesus is going to tell us how to respond because he's not just trying to scare us. I think he is in some ways trying to wake us up to reality, but he's not just trying to scare us. Jesus is ultimately trying to help us, which is why he goes on to say what he says next. So look at the next set of verses, verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them be like a wise man or a wise woman who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and it beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man or a foolish woman 
who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. These are the last words that Jesus speaks in his sermon on the Mount. And it's a haunting, haunting parable. This is how he ends. Now, here's the problem. If you grew up in church, which by the way, just a show of hands, so you help me out here. How many of you grew up in church? Not all of us, thank the Lord, but most of us did. Okay, so if you grew up in church, man, here's the thing. You are at a disadvantage with this passage because you saw this in Sunday school, most likely on a felt board and it's cute to you and it's sentimentalized. And I just need you to forget everything you think you know about this passage because this passage is not cute. It's not sentimental. It's terrifying. And here's the thing, like in our culture, we have a hard time understanding this because in our culture to have a house that's built with a shaky foundation, there are codes for that. We don't have that, like that's so rare to have a house that has a foundation that's uh, potentially uh, going to give away. Like that's so rare. It does happen, but it's so rare because we've got building codes and we have modern technology. So if your house does get uh, destroyed in a storm, like mine has in a tornado, thank you more. Uh, if that happens to you, it's like not the end of the world. It's a big deal. It's scary, but it's not the end of the world because I have insurance. And so I just take my insurance money and I can either rebuild or I can go renovate a house or buy another house or do whatever I want because it's not that hard to just build another house in our culture. We do it all the time. But in the first century, it wasn't that way. In the first century, you rarely, rarely, rarely ever built a house more than once. You would just do it and then you would pass that house on down through your family. And then most likely what would happen is that once you got married, you would actually uh, build on to your house. So if you're a son or a daughter, you get married, you just build on to your family's house. By the way, some things have changed and I'm grateful for that. I love my in-laws, but I'm also fine with some distance. And so it's not a bad thing that we do it the way we do it. But in the first century, they did it a little differently. So you had this house that was always in the family and always there, and it would be devastating, not just a setback, but devastating if your house got destroyed. And what Jesus is saying is this is actually a parable for how you and I interact with his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. So let me just give you a few observations as we wrap this up. Number one, your house is your life. When Jesus talks about these two houses, he's talking about your life and two different ways that you can build your house. See, everybody, no matter if you're a follower of Jesus or not, everybody has their own vision of what the good life is. Even if you've never stepped foot in a church, you don't believe in Jesus at all, you have your own idea of what the good life's all about. And what Jesus is inviting you to do in the Sermon on the Mount, what he's urging and pleading you to do in the Sermon on the Mount is to build your house on his teachings to build your house on him, on faith in Jesus and obedience to Jesus. He's urging you, hey, here's my vision of the good life. Here's my vision of human flourishing. Here's my vision of what it is to thrive. Here's how you interact. Here's how you relate to anger and enemies. And, 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 and here's how you deal with lust and, and anxiety and prayer. He's just giving us his vision for how to live as a human. And what I want you to think about is everybody is building their house on some foundation. Think seriously and deeply about what foundation you're building on. This is so, so important. Now, some of you might just quickly respond, almost like just kind of out of your, out of your brain real quickly. Well, of course I'm building my life on Jesus. Of course I am. But remember the warning that Jesus just gave us, that there are people who say they are, and maybe even, they're not going to be shocked by this, by the way, but maybe they even believe all the right stuff, but their life 
is disconnected from his teaching. So Jesus is warning us. I love these words from Tim Keller because they're really helpful for me as a pastor in trying to understand what Oklahoma culture is like. Listen to what he says. He says, individuals could profess to not be secular people, to have religious faith, yet at the practical level, the existence of God may have no noticeable impact on their life decisions and conduct. This is because in a secular age, even religious people tend to choose lovers and spouses, careers and friendships, and financial options with no higher goal than their own, than their own present time personal happiness. Even if you are not a secular person, the secular age can thin out or secularize faith until it is seen as simply one more choice in life along with job, recreation, hobbies, politics, rather than as the comprehensive framework that, that determines all of life's choices. See, what Jesus is pleading with us to do in the Sermon on the Mount is to make the Sermon on the Mount the overall guiding framework for our whole life. That's what he's urging you to do. Not just like attach Jesus to your thing and then go about your life. He's actually saying, I want you to trade that for an entirely new framework in which to see the world and live out of the world. And that is with my authority, literally living in this world, not just with a professed faith in Jesus. That's important. Faith in Jesus and obedience to his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. That's what he's saying. Number two, second observation I want to give you. This is not about good versus bad people, but about thoughtful versus foolish people. This is important. Jesus isn't just saying, just be better. Just try harder. Just don't be a bad person. There's good people. And there's bad. That's not what he's saying at all. He's, he's saying something way more complex and way more uh, something to wrestle with. Look at verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man or a wise woman who built his house on the rock. Verse 26. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Jesus is saying that there are two ways to live. There's a wise, thoughtful way to live, and there's a foolish way to live. And what his argument is in the Sermon on the Mount is that the way of the world is the foolish way to live. The way of culture is the foolish way to live. Their vision of the good life, it's the foolish way to live. He's saying it's the wide gate. It's the easy path that anybody can go down. But he's saying it will lead to destruction. And the argument that Jesus is giving us in the Sermon on the Mount is that there is a narrow gate. It's hard to find. And there's a very hard path. And this is the path of trusting in Jesus and obeying Jesus. And when you walk that path, it will lead to life. There are just two ways to live. He's not saying be good and not bad. He's saying be thoughtful. Don't be foolish. I know how humanity works. Jesus is saying, I designed humanity. I designed you. I designed this world. I designed what should be the good life. I know what was lost at the fall. I'm trying to get you back at that. I've lived. I've died. I've risen again. Here's the new way to live now. What will you do? That's what Jesus is saying. It's not about good versus bad. It's about thoughtful versus foolish. Number three, you can't tell what the foundation is until the storms come. This is really interesting because these two houses that are built on rock and sand can both look the same. Both could be beautiful houses. Both could be painted the same color. Both could have the same exact features and design on the outside. 
the, the way that you know if a house is built on rock or sand is ultimately when the storm comes, it reveals the foundation. Isn't that interesting that Jesus says this? He doesn't say, and if tragedy strikes, if something painful happens in your world, if you get news from the doctor that you did not want to get, if things in marriage get rocky, if your sexuality starts to bottom out, if, no, 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 he says, when the storms come, meaning all of us, part of what it is to be a human is that we are going to experience tragedies. We are going to experience loss. We are going to experience suffering. We're going to experience heartbreak. We're going to experience stuff that's, that doesn't feel fair and doesn't feel right. It's storms in Jesus's language. See, storms, he's not talking about end time final judgment here. He's just saying, here's what it is to be a human. And he's saying, here's how you know how a person is built. Here's how you know what foundation. It's when the storms come and that tells you what the foundation is. I think about my, one of my best buddies, one of our pastors, Sean Evans, when he got uh, bad news from the doctor that he needed to have open heart surgery. That was tragic, unexpected news. That's a storm that crashes into his house. And do you know what I saw him do? I saw him actually lean in deeper into trust in Jesus. That shows you the foundation there is okay. Other people, something tragic happens, like, I'm out. I'm out on this. Shows what the foundation is. Frederick Bruner, he says, obedience to Jesus' words is not so much protection from troubles as protection in them. Just as rock under a house does not shield from storms, but supports during them. So these two houses can look the same, but the way that you can tell the difference is what, what you do when the storm comes. And then finally, the fourth thing I want you to see here as an observation of this, this haunting parable, hearing Jesus' words is not enough. Hearing his words is really important. Hearing words from Jesus is indispensable. Studying the Bible is vital. It's so important to have good theology. All of that matters. So you should listen to pastors that preach sound uh, Bible doctrine. You should do that. You should listen to podcasts that are going to point you to Jesus and remind you of the narrow way. You should do all of that. You should read books by good authors, by, by both living and dead authors that are, that are sound and solid and help. You should do all of that. But none of that is sufficient. None of that ultimately matters. Do you know what matters? It's not just hearing the words that Jesus says, but doing them also. We're supposed to hear in such a way that it drops down into our heart and then works its way out until, in, in, into the ways I interact with money, into the ways I interact with my sexuality, into the ways that I interact with my relationships, into the ways that I treat my enemies. If I'm not blessing those who curse me, I'm living opposite of what Jesus has taught. This affects not just the way I think about following Jesus, but how I actually follow Jesus. Hearing his words is not enough. So where do we go from here? Well, it's really interesting to me how Matthew ends the whole sermon. So Jesus ends his sermon with that parable. He's done. Not a high note. This is a solemn note. But then Matthew makes this comment in verse 28 and 29. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished. At his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. See, the whole Sermon on the Mount is an authority claim from Jesus. And he was demanding a response from his crowds then 
And he's demanding a, a response from this crowd today. And their crowd, the crowd that was there that day listening to Jesus say these words, they were astonished. Some were, sh- they were shaken to the core. Some decided to not follow Jesus. Chapter 8, verse 1 says that many crowds, a great crowd, followed Jesus. They caught the vision of what it was to put their life under his authority. But no matter what, this is his, his demanding a response of you. It's an authority claim on your life. In this sermon, think about what Jesus has said. It's stuff that none of our pastors would ever get away with saying. Jesus has said this. He has said, you're going to stand before him on the day of judgment. No pastor at our church could say that. Jesus has said that you will call him Lord, Lord. No pastor in our church would ever say that in a sermon. Jesus says that you have to build your life on his teachings, not even on the teachings of the Bible, like the scribes would have said. Yeah, the teachings of the Torah, build your life on that. No, no, Jesus says, on my teachings. None of our pastors could ever say that. I could never stand up before you and say, you must build your life on my teaching. And yet Jesus says this, because this is him demanding a response. He is putting himself as Lord and authority, and he's offering you two ways to live. He's showing you two different paths, two different options, two different end destinations. This is what he's saying to us today. So here's how we're going to end. We're going to end a little different. I want to invite you to stand with me. Instead of ending how we normally do, where we invite you to the table, I want to kind of give you a few options. Some of you some of you, you're, you're here and you've just been checking this out, trying to wrestle with the claims of Jesus. If that's you, we're so glad you're here. We're so glad that you're with us. And here in just a minute, we're going to have men and women down front ready to talk with you, ready to pray with you, ready to ask and answer any question, kind of do, do some dialogue with you, whatever we need to. There's also going to be some slides up on the screen that I think are helpful for you. For others of you, please, please hear this. Please hear the words of Jesus today. You have said for so long that you are a follower of Jesus, but your life is completely disconnected from that reality. Today, Jesus is not angrily accusing or condemning you. He's just offering you into a new way. He's offering you to come into his way and actually become a Christian for the first time. Maybe this series was just Jesus's grace to show you that you really weren't ever a Christian so that now you can become a Christian. Others of you, you're here today, and if you're anything like me, there's so much of what Jesus teaches and so much of my life that doesn't quite fit into his vision. There's things that are off. There's ways I need help and prayer and grace. And if that's you, then you can either come up front and get prayer for those things, or you can come and receive the bread and the wine the body of Jesus that was broken for you and the blood of Jesus that was shed for you because this is not um, just a group of people that used to be bad and now we're good. No, 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 no. This is a group of people that needed the death of Jesus on a cross for us and the resurrection of Jesus to offer us forgiveness and grace. But when we receive that, we slowly become different people. So here's how we're going to end. I'm not going to invite you to the table. You can do that in just a minute if you need to. You can sit in your chair and process if you need to. I want to invite you just to close your eyes. You now have the teachings of Jesus. What will you do with them?
grace and peace be sent in the name of Jesus. We love you.